from the Jesuits of Canada and the United States. This is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. One of my favorite scripture passages for the Easter season is the road to Emmaus story from Luke's gospel. You probably know this story well. Two of Jesus' followers are walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're heartbroken after the crucifixion. A mysterious stranger joins them on the journey and proceeds to break open the scriptures and explain why Jesus had to die. They get to an inn. The disciples invite their companion to eat with them. He takes bread at the table. He blesses it. He breaks it. He starts to give it to them. And they realize in that moment who he is. He vanishes from their sight. The two immediately leave the inn and head back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles what they've seen. I love how Jesus in this story walks alongside the disciples. He listens. He shares. He spends quality time with them. It's a beautiful vision of the way I think God wants to accompany us on our own life journeys. I also think it's a great description of what it means to be a church that practices synodality. As you might have heard, the global church is in the middle of a long consultation process on the theme of synodality, a fancy sounding theological word that means on the way together. Synodality is a way of doing church that emphasizes listening. It emphasizes shared leadership responsibilities between ordained and lay faithful. It emphasizes reading and responding to the signs of the times. One of the Jesuits helping the church to think about how synodality is lived out is Father James Hanvey, SJ, and he's my guest today. Father Hanvey is a theologian and works as the secretary for the service of faith at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. He's also on a couple of the committees supporting the work of the synod, including one examining the spirituality of synodality. That group at the Vatican has just released a document on biblical resources for synodality, which we'll link to in the show notes. Where in sacred scripture do we hear the call to synodality most compellingly? Funnily enough, they don't use the road to Emmaus in the document as one example, but they have some really great examples from other places in scripture where we can dig into that theme. I spoke with Father Hanvey while the committee was putting the final touches on this document, and I asked him about how Ignatian spirituality might contribute to our building a synodal church. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Father James Hanvey, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you? At the moment, I'm very well, Mike. Thank you very much. And it's a great privilege to be with you. Um, I think it's the morning in your time and it's afternoon in my time. Yeah, so it's uh, I'm fresh, ready to go. Um, and hopefully you, uh, as we get toward the later afternoon there, still have some good energy for uh, an interesting conversation um, about the topic of synodality. And we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But first, I was just wondering if you could introduce yourself a little bit and, and talk about uh, what you do and, and where you're from. Um, well, uh, I'm obviously James Hanvey. I don't think I'm anybody else at the moment. And um, um, I'm a, as you'll hear from my accent, I'm originally from Ireland. And um, it's, I, I went to university in the UK. And from there, 
I joined the British province. Um, I had a, I think I had a vocation to priesthood all of my life. So it was a question when I finally settled down and decided that I wanted to become a priest. It was then a question of which direction should I take. And um, there were various options, obviously, the diocesan priesthood. At that time, I was quite attracted to the contemplative life. Um, and then what came up for me was then the possibility of the Jesuits. So I don't know quite where that did come from. I was staying at the time in a Benedictine monastery, and I happened to ask the then abbot, um, who was, uh, subsequently became Cardinal Basil Hume, did he know anything about the Jesuits? Um, and not, I have no idea where that question came from, because that had never been really in my mind before. Uh, I, at that point, I was actually not thinking so much of the Benedictines, I was thinking more of the Cistercians. And um, he's, he pointed to a very tall, cadaverous man standing in the corner having a coffee. Um, and he said, go and ask him. He's a Jesuit. Uh, so I boldly went up and said, did he know anything about the Society of Jesus? And he said, well, I think I should. I've been one for 35, 40 years. He was an Irishman who happened to be the advisor, one of the councillors uh, to Pedro Arupe, who was then the general. So we had a conversation, and he put me in touch with the uh, the novice ship um, uh, in uh, the UK, and the rest, I think, is history um, from there. So do you ever feel a pull back towards some kind of monastic life? I know Jesuits are supposed to be contemplatives in action, so maybe some uh, it's a natural pull towards some uh, more contemplative life, but that, that surprises me to kind of be in one track and then just to, to switch so suddenly. Um, well, I... Actually, um, I, I, to be honest, yes, I, I did have uh, have that. I mean, it came uh, just after I'd taken my vows, uh, the first vows. Um, well, during the during the, the the novitiate, I did find the exercises really engaging, and I felt that you know I has I was really understood by Ignatius, and um, although the novitiate was particularly hard in many ways. Uh, the novice master and I didn't exactly hit it off. Um, and so every time I was summoned to his august presence, I was expecting to be dismissed. Um, uh, however, that never happened. Um, and But about uh, a year or two years after my uh, first vows, I did feel a very deep call to the contemplative life. And there's always been a very special relationship between the Jesuits and the Carthusians. So I got permission uh, to go and uh, uh, live in a Carthusian monastery uh, for about a month, I think it was. Uh, and I was completely at home in that. And um, I really felt this is, this is where I want to be, except my, my, uh, my cell was somewhat crowded um, because it was just me. Um, and somehow Ignatius kept coming in through the door or through the window or somewhere. Um, and so when I eventually finished that month and went back, um, uh, then I made that discernment and it became very clear to me that this is where God wanted me to be in the society. And really since that point on, um, I've never really felt a pull to contemplative life again. I mean, I deeply appreciate the contemplative tradition um, and have learned a huge amount from it. But, but for some, somehow that was my vocation uh, settled. And so here I am. 
Hmm. I think of that, the poem, The Hound of Heaven, the idea of kind of being chased by God and uh, the idea that Ignatius kind of hung out with you in the Cartesian uh, monastery. <laughs> yes, I'm um, sure he, re- he has regretted that from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> so from, from, from there, what, what has been uh, your, your life in the society? What types oh, of things tra- have you been involved trajectory. in? Well, um, you know, fairly straightforward, normal Jesuit formation. Uh, I'm deeply grateful for um, all that I've received from the society in terms of the theology and the philosophy. Um, and then I did my doctorate in theology at Oxford University. And uh, in the great tradition of discernment, um, which means that we haven't really thought deeply about anything, but we think it might be a good idea. I was then, having got the doctorate in theology, I was then uh, sent to be headmaster of a, a very distinct, <laughs> distinguished school in uh, Glasgow. I'm smiling because I'm not so sure it was as distinguished by the time I'd finished as headmaster. But anyway, um, but uh, after that, I then returned to theology um, was teaching theology at our then uh, theology college in uh, the University of London called Heathrop. I was head of department there and then set up an institute for religion, ethics, and public life, um, which was very formative for me, actually, because up until that point, I think the sort of theology I had been doing had been um, rather philosophical and uh, and suddenly I had to re- rethink that in terms of the realities of the, the, the political realities and the social realities. So theology had to come into contact with that and be shaped by it. Um, and then after that, um, I, uh, I then went on to teach theology again in Oxford. And I was master of Campion Hall, our, 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 our college in Oxford. And then from there, I was very happily uh, heading to BC or Boston College um, when I'd finished as Master of Campion Hall. And somehow the plane landed in Rome and, and here I am. And I'm still wondering what I am doing here. But that's also called discernment. And that was the, that was the choice of the general at the time to set up this position of, um, of the Secretary for the Service of Faith. It's a relatively new p- uh, position. Um, and it has a very wide remit. Um, it largely covers uh, our Jesuit spirituality and our spirituality centers and all the different varieties of our work. Um, it also covers the theological dimension, um, the evangelizing dimension, and the uh, interreligious and ec- ecumenical work that we do. So it is really quite a, a wide uh, remit. So I'm still trying to grapple with that a little bit. This just just going into my second year, a third year on this, you know. But it's been fascinating, and I've, I must say, it has really expanded my horizons because I didn't really know very much about Asia or India or or, or Africa, although I had been in Africa a little bit for a while. Um, and suddenly, uh, you realize how different the world is, and the issues that are facing faith there in all these different parts of the world um, are quite different from anything I would be familiar with in Europe. So that's been challenging, but uh, stimulating and very, uh, very much an expansion of my own world. What would a typical week look like? I imagine your typical day might be different depending on what you're working on. But so what are some of the conversations you're having or projects you're working on? 
Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think there's an error in your question, if you don't mind me saying so, Mike, with the use of the word typical, um, because I, so far as I can see, there isn't anything that's typical from day to day, um, uh, except maybe getting a cup of tea or coffee or something. And even that sometimes goes by the board. But um, in, uh, let's say in a in, in <laughs> reasonably average week, um, well, at the moment, uh, a, a lot of my time is is uh, devoted to synodality um, because I, I'm, uh, I, I'm on uh, w- one of the commissions, the Spirituality Commission for Synodality. I also make a contribution on the theological front and uh, some of the other areas of synodality and work quite closely um, with the Secretariat for the Synod. Um, and that's been a huge learning curve in many ways. Um, so that's at the moment that's taking up uh, a bit of time because we have some uh, new documents which we hope will be out in the next few weeks. Um, so that's one chunk of work. But on average, um, it's it's pretty much um, like last week I had no sorry this week I had a a conference with um, our secretaries for the service of faith in India. We have twenty one, one in each province. Really, again, talking about synodality with them, but also learning from them about the sorts of issues and questions and challenges that face uh, the church in India at the moment. Um, so it, that that was part of it. Um, there were other conferences. Everything life has become Zoom at the moment uh, with some uh, institutes in in uh, in America. And at the moment, we're also planning a small the- uh, theological conference of uh, theologians from Jesuit universities um, to try and uh, come to write a paper to help us think more deeply about the role of theology in our universities. So it, it, it's quite a varied um, uh, sort of menu from, from week to week, if I can put it that way. Well, that sounds fun. It's better than just doing the same thing all the time, right? Yeah, well, no, that's certainly true. Um, and I, I suppose it's it's the normal life of any working Jesuit. You you end up juggling so many different um, sort of uh, bits and pieces and keeping them all going and trying also to bring, I suppose, you. I'm always worried that because of that, you're not bringing enough depth of reflection to things or, or, or thinking through uh, issues. But, um, but hopefully something happens and it will be of use uh, in some way. So one of the things that you're juggling that I wanted to ask you about is this idea of synodality. Now, I've been working professionally in the church as a lay person my whole career, um, and I have a theology master's degree, but I admit that this word is relatively new to me, and I'm still not exactly sure what it means. And so It's been talked about a lot, right, especially even before the synod, but now especially that there is a synod on synodality, it's popping up a lot more. And so if you're on an airplane or an elevator or something with someone um, who uh, you get to talking to and and the concept of synodality comes up somehow, uh, how, how do you explain it to someone who might not be so familiar um, well, what synodality I, means. If I'm in an elevator, I try and get out at the next floor, I think, uh, as quickly <laughs> as possible if they ask me a question like that. A plane makes it more difficult, of course, because mm. you never know where you're going to land. But, um, well, I think I think you're right. I think um, for most of us, even for someone like myself who's trained in theology, although 
my area has always been in the doctrine of the Trinity and things like that, not so much in ecclesiology. Um, it's suddenly come into focus um, and in a very specific and dynamic way. And I think a lot of that is uh, because of the renewal uh, that Pope Francis is seeking. The the way in which it, it's often expressed is it takes it takes itself from the this combination of the two Greek words of of walking together the Exodus and walking the sin sin together this the synthesis together, um, so it's very often thought it's it's how we as a as a church walk together with each other and of course with Christ and in a wider sense although uh, synodality is really you know focused on the church and the church's life it's also about the church's mission so it's also about how the church walks together with the whole of humanity and the whole of creation so that's probably the simplest way into it I think it's it, it, it's much deeper than than that um, I, I think there is, I mean, another way into it is to think of the Eucharist itself, um, which gathers us around Christ, and uh, and Christ is present in each of us and to each of us um, in the whole sacrament of the church, as well as the sacrament of his body and blood. So it's this gathering together um, and this deep sense of communion, which is, of course is the gift of the Spirit, uh, that is alive in each one of us. So it's a recovery in many ways, a renewal um, of the deep life of the Holy Spirit in the whole of the church and in each one of us. Um, it's the, 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 again, the Greek word that's often used in the New Testament, and it's a particular gift of the Spirit, is this uh, koinonia, this, this fellowship, this coming together, this new creation. And I think that's what's at the heart of it and certainly attending the opening of the synod in um in october of last year um it, none of us were, were pretending that this is like the second vatican council again but but there was a palpable sense that um that the spirit was present and was calling us um to deepen our ecclesial commitment and our mission together for the world. So, having worked with the the secretariat that's working on the synod and getting a chance to understand a little bit of Pope Francis's vision, I'm curious if, if you could just talk about any ways in which you would see synodality in the church. Like, what are some examples? How do we know when we're kind of living that or when we're, we're growing in that, um, what, how does that end up manifesting itself in our, in our daily life as church? No, I think that's a very good question because it, it highlights the fact that it, it's, um, you know, in one of the uh, documents, uh, it, it says that the synodality is constitutive of the church. That means it's part of the essence of the church, is the way in which we are church. And, in actual fact, I think when you look at the reality of our lives, you discover that we have been living synodality in various ways. Um, so that when you when you see the the parish um, uh, gathered in prayer, um, either at the Eucharist or at uh, a devotional moment, gathered um, for uh, exposition or something, like that, when you see the church at prayer, you're experiencing synodality. 
uh, because there we're all equal and we recognize that it's the spirit that has gathered us with all our different shapes and sizes and uh, from and very often from many different uh, backgrounds and, and nations. There is the reality of synodality already being lived. When you see the work that happens in parishes, ordinary parishes, the reaching out to those in need, the reaching out to the wider community, whether they're Catholic or not Catholic, all of those acts of charity are acts of synodality because essentially um, synodality is about um, the living of the life of love that we've been given through the Holy Spirit. So I think I think we have been living it. I think one of the uh, one of the things that I think one of the parts that we're rediscovering is that um, we we have to do it as a complete community. That means that everybody has a a voice and an insight and a wisdom to offer, and therefore I think it. We can't just be passive uh, about our our uh, membership or about our role or about our vocation, uh, because uh, again, synodality is rooted in the uh, the the grace of baptism that belongs to all members of the church, and gives them a right to uh, be in the body of Christ uh, and also to speak and to share their wisdom in whatever way they choose with that. So so that's why you have it at the moment. That's why you have this very open process of consultation. And of course, what uh, the Pope has highlighted, and I think it's quite extraordinary really, um, is highlighted, and it's a big challenge in so many ways, is to look at uh, look at the margins, look at the poor, look at those that may feel excluded or alienated. How do we bring them in? How do we hear their voice? Um, and uh, that reaching out is another dy- dynamic of synodality. And of course, in that process, um, we, we will be changed too. Um, the other dimension to that, which I don't want us to forget, is what I would call, uh, a friend of mine uh, uh, gave me a wonderful vision of this. He used to talk about the church behind the pillar. These are the uh, the really faithful people of God who are present um, at, at Mass or at any of the devotions. But they're not going to be the, the, the verbal ones. They're not going to be that. But they're there. They're the present. I mean, my best example of that is when I was a young priest, just newly ordained, in our parish in uh, Glasgow, um, there was a 10 o'clock Mass, which was the the normal Mass for the parish. Um, but it was also the, the Mass at which um, many of the funerals would take place. And uh, as a young priest, you get very nervous about getting this right because you're aware that people are very sensitive uh, in these moments and uh, you don't want to make mistakes. You want it to be as smooth and as consoling as possible for them. So there was always a a sort of tense moment for me. Um, But I always knew that that community of prayer was there. And I knew they would be praying for the family of the person who died and for the soul of the person themselves. And every morning I would come back to them and that was my support and my community of prayer. That, for me, was a lived synodality in which we were both, as a complete church, my, myself and the real people of God, um, I sometimes think of them as the Anawim. Those are, those are the, the ones that are really devoted to God and God's service. 
And they're the ones that sustain the church and the church's life, you know. So so that's where I would want to root it. I, I don't know if that, that helps, Mike, you... Sure. I curious though, as like I have you know reflected on synodality, and we had our own consultation at the Jesuit conference in Washington, and we got people from Jesuit Refugee Service and uh, a project called Magis Americas all together to do one of these consultations, and we'll submit our feedback to the Archdiocese of Washington, where we're based. And this feeling that people's experiences, they were trying to hear for everyone and for people to be open and candid about their experiences within the church and within the Society of Jesus. So we, we have, and the examples you gave of a church that is synodal at its best, but we also know the church is, is hierarchical. Uh, and I'm wondering about how those things exist together. And there must be some tension, maybe a creative tension. But I, I imagine I, if we had another pope, if uh, Pope Francis resigned tomorrow and another one came in who wasn't as interested in synodality, it wouldn't be a central topic anymore um, that there can be things. Those things can can change. So how do you understand synodality and, again, our hierarchical structure uh, working together? Well, uh, in, in two ways, I think. Um, First of all, I think I think what we have to learn is that um, hierarchy uh, and the people of God are not opposite poles. In fact, it's the people of God are, are all the baptized uh, priests, bishops, and and everyone else, um, and that the the office of the priest or the office of the bishop is a charism for the church, just as much as um, each one of us is in, is is anointed by the Spirit with our own particular charism. So, so we have to try and avoid seeing them as opposites, um, because once you start doing that, then you actually distort the whole thing and and you make it into a, a power struggle, and it's not a power struggle. Um, for for me, one of the key texts um, is. Uh, the, the the Council of Jerusalem. Right at the very beginning of the church, there's this big conflict going on between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And uh, so the church has to hold a council to work through this conflict and to work, work through this question because the question itself is actually about the very identity of the, of the Christian community. What's interesting in, in, in Acts is you'll notice that it's not Peter and Paul who are leading. Peter and Paul are there as witnesses to the Spirit who is leading. And so I think it's, it's part and parcel of seeing that there is a real role uh, for us all in this, and it's to be attentive to one another, but also to recognize that hierarchy is a gift, um, now, I come at this from a particular Jesuit tradition where we clearly do have a hierarchy. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the superior or the provincial or the general who decides. But there is a wonderful freedom um, without which obedience doesn't mean very much. And that's the freedom, first of all, to represent as strongly and as honestly as you can your position or your insight or your take on something. But equally, the challenge to me from the other side then is when my superior, when my provincial or the general decides something, do I trust this institution? Do I trust that the Spirit works in this way as well? And I have to say that in my own life, that uh, that trust has never been betrayed. Um, I, I haven't always liked what uh, the, uh, the the final outcome, but it's always been a grace. And so I think there's a challenge 
within that to us all in the church to grow more deeply in this sense of how the Spirit works amongst us. It also means that I think the, the bishops and priests, whoever are involved now, have a deep responsibility to listen to the Spirit in the church itself. Um, and uh, I think we're all in the process of growing there. So that's, that's how I would, I would see that operating. Okay, just one little footnote, if I may, to that. Um, I was uh, preparing one of the courses I teach at the, the, uh, the Gregorian University um, and, uh, in the summer, and I was rereading um, a, a series of lectures that Karl Rahner had given in 1971. I think it's called The Church of the Future, or The Future Church. And these were a series of, of short uh, talks that he'd given in preparation for the 1971 Synod of the German Church, the German bishops. It was fascinating uh, to read them because practically all the issues he was addressing are the issues today. And so you're saying, well, haven't we had like 50 years of all of this? And what's been happening in these? Well, a lot has been happening in these 50 years. But what I took from it was that, you know, if this is really from the Spirit, you, we're not going to be able to stop it. it yeah, we, may, the, we may pause it, or we may have to go around it, or there may be other issues that have to be addressed. But if it's a deep movement of the Spirit, then it will come back. And it'll come back when we're ready to receive it, because sometimes we're not always ready to receive what the Spirit is offering us. So um, um, I have every confidence. Uh, this is not just an invention of uh, Pope Francis. I think the Spirit has been moving us in this direction for a very long time. And I think the Spirit, you know, the one thing you know about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit doesn't give up. Um, uh, thank God. So, uh, So I think... We'll get there in the end. I personally, I think um, it's going to take maybe two or three generations before we actually become a real synodal church. But I'm so grateful that we're on the road. I'm grateful uh, for well, for one, for your um, consistent reference to the Spirit and the way the Spirit leads. I feel like the Holy Spirit is the most underappreciated person of the Trinity. Yes, I agree. Uh, <laughs> and, and then also your your reference to the Council of Jerusalem and, and even how Peter and Paul are presented uh, in that in their their role there, not again as leading, but as witnesses to the Spirit's leading. And I, you mentioned earlier your own kind of background um, studying the the doctrine of the Trinity, another uh, easy one for an elevator conversation. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious for you, uh, the intersection of, of those things, we think of the Trinity, at least in some way, as communion, as the communion of the, the three persons, and the, also we are invited into that relationship. Um, and just wondering for you, as someone who has spent a lot of time with the Trinity um, and now thinking about synodality, how do you see uh, those things coming together? Do you, are you inspired by the, the Trinitarian relationship uh, of God in the work towards synodality? Do you know, I, I am inspired, but, but also when I come to that point, um, even as you ask that question, I can feel myself moving into quite a profound silence. Uh, and and it's not because I want to avoid the question. It's just because I'm, you know, the more we, we contemplate um, the depth and the beauty um, of the of the Trinity, 
we are just moved to a silence about it, I think, a contemplative silence. I mean, um, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful line from uh, Gregory Nancianzos where he begins one of his theological reflections. He says, how can we name the name that is beyond every name? And there's that sense that we're stepping into something that is uh, just a wonderful, infinite uh, depth um, of of love and of life, which which we can't completely comprehend at any point, at least of all on this side um, of our life with God, but nevertheless is present to us um, and is our life. So from that point of view, but we, we, we're constantly learning from God in that way. I mean, uh, at, at the opening, I was very struck, um, at the opening of the Synod in October, three times Pope Francis um, mentioned adoration. And, and that really rather struck me. I, I am a great fan of adoration. Um, I, but I think what he was saying is, look, here is that still contemplative space before Christ, and it's keeping Christ and in Christ the whole people of God together. That's our focus. And so I think that where the Trinity touches this synodal thing, in a way, the, the synodal journey is keeping the Trinity absolutely before our hearts and our minds all the time. And from that we learn. Well, what do we learn? We, we learn, first of all, that it, it, we are relational beings. And our primary relationship with God was, but within that relationship with God, um, we are related to one another. You're not my enemy. Um, I don't have any. I refuse to treat you as an alien or an enemy or anything like that. So I'm called to see you in this, with these eyes of Christ, with these eyes of the Father, um, with the illumination of the Holy Spirit that transforms my understanding and, and, my, and my heart. So that's the first challenge uh, of that. And it's a, beautiful, um, it's a beautiful challenge to be called into. Um, and it's transformative, not just for me, not just for the church, but actually this is where the church becomes a real witness to our world. We're very... Today, how can we not be conscious of the violence uh, and the illusions and all the rest that are happening? But as, as, as we keep our eyes focused on the very Trinitarian life of God, then we come into the truth, um, and that allows us to be truth bringers and life givers to the whole world. So, so that's where I would see one of the uh, directions in uh, uh, the life of the Trinity for us. Um, there was when in at the beginning in, in July um, last year we held a conference here um, uh, on because another key word in in the synodal thing is this uh, word of discernment and I was speaking to Sister Natalie who's uh, one of the secretaries uh, um, and and a tremendous worker for the synod and with deep insights. But we, along with Cardinal Grout, we were very clear that um, there are many different charisms of discernment that the Spirit has given to the Church, many different traditions. So we wanted to hold a sort of day conference in which we, uh, to hear this, 
And it was a wonderful uh, moment for me because I learned so much from it. But we had there, um, we had the Dominicans, we had the Augustinians, we had the Franciscans, we had, of course, ourselves, we had some of the great women religious uh, traditions, but we also had uh, lay uh, movements, lay traditions. And, all. and it was fascinating for me um, to, to hear these different uh, approaches to discernment, which we need so much. But one of the things that really struck me um, came out of the uh, Franciscan tradition in a, in a funny sort of way, and it was this sense of the spirit who always leads us to the beyond. One of the ways in which the Eastern Church speaks about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is the infinite beyond of the Father and the Son. And I think that the life of the Spirit, when the Spirit touches us, we're always called to go beyond. To go beyond where we are, our prejudices, our boundaries, um, uh, wherever, to take that step um, and to expand our hearts and minds, but also to go to the beyond of God himself. So it's a deeper movement in the world, in the world, and uh, through the world into God. So... So I think that's where we're being called all the time. And that Council of Jerusalem, it's very interesting. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit calling the church to go beyond its boundaries, to go beyond its preconditions and its prejudices into this new world that the risen Christ is, is creating for us. I'm grateful that you um, brought up discernment and the, the different traditions coming together to reflect on how we respond to the spirit's movement and, and make choices about directions to go. And I'm curious for, for you as a Jesuit working with people from different traditions, um, when you're working together, say on a, a document on spirituality and synodality, uh, what, what are some of the, the things you would like to bring to that conversation? What contributions do, uh, does the Ignatian tradition have for how we think about and act out synodality? Well, Mike, after uh, almost a very long Jesuit life, I've learned not to ask Jesuits about discernment um, uh, because it usually ends up in sort of complete chaos. Um, however, as I'm the only one you're asking here at the moment, um, uh, first of all, I, I think it's really... The discernment is becoming an overused word now. And the danger with it being overused is it takes on many meanings and uh, therefore it eventually uh, sort of uh, loses its meaning. Um, I think we, first of all, uh, and okay, this is going to reflect a, a bias of my own, being a theologian, um, I'm not starting with different protocols or procedures or anything like that. Um, I think I think discernment is a profoundly theological act. And what do I mean by that? I mean that discernment, God is active in our world. Christ is risen and active in the world. The Spirit is active in the world and in our lives. And I think discernment is, I am trying to tune myself to what God is doing so that I can be, to borrow a phrase from Ignatius, an instrument in God's hands. Um, uh, so, so that's where I would start um, and unless we, we put God first and we have that vision of a God who is working um, f 
to redeem our world and to sanctify our world and to heal it, then um, we can have all the wonderful processes and protocols and uh, gymnastics that we like. But in actual fact, it's not going to be discernment. And equally, if you say uh, part of discernment is listening deeply, part of discernment is being open and consulting widely, um, all of that is absolutely true. And that's what we would need for any wisdom. And we've all done that in different situations for different decisions. But it's not necessarily discernment. It's about making a good decision, but it's not necessarily about finding out what is it that God is asking in this situation at this moment. So putting God first and trying to attune to that. I think the it's the hard work of preparation which we sometimes miss. As you know from the exercises, we really come to discernment in the second week where we're really making the big decision about the direction of our lives or the shape that our lives is going to have. We come to the second week through the first week, and in the, the first week is where I know, I come to know myself before the crucified Christ. Um, I come to understand how I'm caught up in my different webs of illusion, of selfishness, of prejudice, and also how that distorts my judgment and my freedom. So I think that we, we have to do that hard work of honesty so that when I come to any process of decision, uh, of discernment, whether it's, whether it's in a group or whether it's personally, but let's, talk, let's think of it now in terms of a, of a community or a parish or the church itself, we first of all need to begin by recognizing our limitations, by recognizing that the way in which uh, our sinfulness distorts our judgment, distorts our hearts, because then, once we do that, then we know how much we need God's grace, but also we also need, we begin to grow in the freedom to discern, to choose what God is calling us to. So that's that's the hard work, and I, what worries me a little bit sometimes is that in, there are many, many uh, very admirable uh, sort of, uh, formulae for uh, discernment, but I just wonder how many of them actually spend the time in that and how a group needs to mature. So I need to be able to say to you, look, Mike, I think you're a wonderful person, but every time you say this, I react this way. I need to recognize that in myself. Um, or I'm so afraid of what's going to happen that I'm not open to hear somebody else. So I need to recognize those moments in myself. Then I can begin to uh, attend to the way in which the Spirit is speaking uh, in, in the group. Um, the third element of that, I think, for me is it, it, will, it will always take different forms. I, I love... There's, there's a wonderful image that was given to me. I don't know if uh, your listeners will recognize there's a very wonderful uh, English soprano, now retired, called Dame Janet Baker. And then there's a, a very distinctive uh, tenor, English tenor, called Peter Piers. And uh, they have a wonderful uh, recording of St. Bach's St. Matthew's Passion which I think is a sort of classic sort of interpretation of that extraordinary work. There's a tribute that uh, Jane, uh, Dane Janet Baker gives to Peter Pierce, and she said, Peter taught me how to sing Bach, and he taught me how to sing Bach by trusting Bach. 
once we trust the score, then we're free to sing and to improvise and to bring our own uh, voice to that. And I think, so I think that's the other movement in discernment. It's about trusting the score. It's about trusting God's purpose. It's about loving the church and trusting God's work in the church. Then, okay, we can discern. Discernment isn't always going to be perfect. It may lead us into areas that we think, oh, this is a dead end. That's okay. If we're free enough and trusting enough in that faith, then God will bring out of that something that's good and we will mature in that process. So I think it's that trust. So also we can sing together because I think the other thing is, uh, I like the image of the choir here. I mean, uh, we all help one another sing. I'm not a particularly good singer. In fact, every time I start to sing, people leave the room. I don't understand that, but that's what happens. Um, but if you notice when you're singing together, people will keep you on the right note. And and I think that's that's why... That's why we need the church, because as church, the church keeps us on the right note, and together we keep one another in tune. So those would be some of the, the things. And, of course, the obvious thing is prayer. You can't discern without prayer. Um, you can't discern without every day coming and asking God to show us the way that God wants us to follow. And also to have the openness of God uh, to others and to other situations so that every voice is heard. Um, the weakest of signals are picked up um, because the Spirit is moving in all of that. Well, Father James, I think that's a, a great place to close our conversation and I'm going to go listen to some Bach now. And <laughs> Good. Um, <laughs> We're having our uh, four-year, soon-to-be four-year-old's birthday party this uh, weekend with a musical theme. So there'll be lots of singing uh, by four-year-olds and their parents. Wonderful at that at that gathering. So I'll be thinking about uh, the church singing together. Uh, Excellent. Perhaps. Uh, Excellent. Actually, I'll probably be worried about um, the four-year-old's <laughs> little brother running away. Um, but so it goes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and for these reflections. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>